Welcome to the Sisters Community Church Podcast. The presence of God is vital and it's all around us. Well, in today's sermon, Pastor Steve Stratus continues our series in Praying with Paul, where he discusses how Paul prays for God's presence and how we should do the same. Let's listen. I had a uh, privilege last Sunday. Uh, I was in Massachusetts visiting with my dad, who's 93. Thank you for your prayers. Um, he's just failing, and he probably sleeps 20 hours a day. And, and it's, uh, for those of you who have had parents who um, have passed, you know, at times that can be really, I'm, I'm his only son, and so um, just seeing him like that is a, a little difficult. But thank you for your prayers, and, uh, and um, <clears throat> continue that he might meet the peace of God. Um, now I completely forgot what we're doing here. <laughs> I got, while well, I was, when I was um, there, I got to, with my um, brother-in-law and, and half-sister, we got to watch Jonathan uh, at, ch- at church. So it was the first time I've actually watched the streaming, and Jonathan did an awesome job. I was really, really a little jealous at the beginning because he got to catch the football and I didn't, but it was a great illustration, so really appreciated that and appreciate all you guys do to make that happen so people can watch it wherever they are. So we have been in, in a journey together as a church and um, we are talking about prayer. And I couldn't help think as we were singing that song that um, there was a line in it as we sing songs of faith, we pray prayers of desperation. That word desperation really struck me as um, I watched the Jesus Revolution. It was probably at the beginning of the movie with Lonnie Frisbee, the number one word that kept being used over and over again. There was a longing that God is calling us to. A desperation, um, which is different than a frustration. But I think the humility and the desperation that we discover as we read through scripture and see the prayers of Paul is a place where we can really begin. We can begin with the kind of humility and desperation that recognizes that all of us who probably know more about the dark nights of the soul, the times when we feel like God isn't present at all, to really long for an experience of his presence. To long for what God could do again. The prayer after seeing Asbury and recognizing the role of revival is the part that we play in it. And it's a part of desperation. It's a part of longing. It's a part of thirst. It's a part of recognizing our own blindness, our own lostness, our own need to be in the presence of God. I love so much the worship this morning because it became a part of ushering in the presence of God. And there are lots of different ways that we might do that. A walk in the woods, a time with our family, 
or wrestling with scripture, singing a song in the dark to help each and every one of us in a moment of time quiet our soul and be still and know that he's God. And so that's our prayer for our church is that if indeed as God is doing something, and I was a part of that generation. I became a believer in 1973. And that whole thing that happened at Calvary Chapel spread all across the country. And I remember the first time when I was in Massachusetts after leaving the commune, going to this Bible college thing that had a Sunday night worship. And when I got there, there was five, six hundred 20-somethings, just worshiping God. I had never seen anything like that. It was so powerful. I remember the title of the message because I had never heard anything like that. It changed my life. I'd already become a believer, but I didn't know what that meant. And so I pray as we've been witness to how it started at Asbury, went over to Cedarville, here something's going on in Texas A&M. Do it again here, God. Do it here so that we might experience your presence, that we might be more than churchgoers living out a moral reformation that seems to be losing the battle. So this morning, I want us to take a look at one of Paul's prayers. It's found in Ephesians chapter 3, and I wonder if you would turn there and verse 14. I know some of you love to stand when we read the word and you probably wonder why I sit when I preach. I'm old. (laughs) So we'll leave it there. (laughs) Let's look at Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power. (laughs) Through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, Sisters Community Church, be rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power And that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me for a moment? Father, these words that Paul prays. He doesn't just pray it for one local church. He prays it for lots of churches that circulated this letter called the Ephesian letter. 
Lord, would you circle it amongst us, in our hearts, that we would recognize the power of Paul's prayer, the power of his longing, his desperation, as he lived in a world that was filled with persecution and pain and suffering. But he spoke Jesus. So God, speak into our hearts and make us different when we leave than when we came. We pray in Christ's name, amen. I was reading uh, some of the celebration of discipline and I wanted to just, uh, Richard Foster says these words, and I'm not sure he quotes them from William Carey or not, but these are the words that he says, prayer catapults us into the frontier of the spiritual life. Of all the spiritual disciplines, prayer is the most central because it ushers us into perpetual communion with the Father. Meditation introduces us to the inner life. Fasting is an accompanying means. Study transforms our minds. But it is the discipline of prayer that brings us into the deepest and highest work of the human spirit. Real prayer is life-creating and life-changing. He goes on to say, to pray is to change. Prayer is the central avenue of God It's the central avenue God uses to transform us. If we are willing to change, we will abandon prayer as a noticeable characteristic of our lives. There's no doubt that prayer is difficult. But as Paul prays here, he wants us to not just know the scripture, but he wants to experience the author of scripture. When we started the epistle of John, a number of months ago, we talked about how John wrote a letter to a number of followers of Jesus that he wanted to introduce them into a personal relationship. They had received the objective truth, so to speak. They had read the letter, but he wanted that letter to make a difference in their heart and their being that they might have a personal experience of the presence of God. And that's what Paul is doing here. This message of prayer that Paul gives us here is that we should seek and experience profound moments of joy and love in the person and intimacy of Jesus Christ. The failure of the church oftentimes in the centuries in which we live or the 20th, 19, because of modernity, we have become a people of systematic theology. We have become a people of doctrine. We have become a people of studying ourselves approved. But oftentimes in our attempt to have the right information, we lose sight of the right person. And so oftentimes our approach to Christianity is that which is right or wrong, not that which is tender and intimate. And so Paul wants us to understand that he, this prayer that he's praying is for that experience of divine joy and love, not just to know about it, but to know it personally, experientially. And so in this prayer that we've just read, I want you to see three things. Why we need it. Paul tells us in this prayer why we need this, what it is that we need, 
and how we go about getting it. And so follow it with me. Look, first of all, why Paul says we, we need it. So he's writing to a number of believers. And, and look at what he says in verses 16 and 17. He says this, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love. But it's an interesting prayer that Paul prays because he's already told us in the, in the second chapter that Christ is already indwelling us. Look at verse, I'll read it to you, Ephesians 2, 22. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. When we become followers of Christ, there is no Christianity without Christ in us. We are in Christ. And so now Paul is praying that they would experience being indwelt by Christ, asking God to indwell them when he already has said that they have been indwelt. He does it again. Look at verse 18 and 19. He prays. He prays that we may have power together with all saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know his love that surpasses knowledge. But again, in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, verse 5, made us alive with Christ, even when we are dead in trespass, dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. So Paul tells us this love, John tells us, we learned it when we were going through First and Second John and Third John. First John 3 and 4 says, God is love, and those that know God have love that dwells in them. So what's Paul doing? He tells us we have it, and then he prays that we get it. And he does that with love. He does that with other things. And and, uh, Paul tells the Romans, he says, and hope is in us because the Spirit of God has spread love abroad in our hearts. So is Paul confused? He's telling us we have all of these things. In the first chapter of Ephesians, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. Verse 3 of chapter 1. But now he's praying that these people would get this. And look what he prays in verse 19. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, 319, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. But he's told the Colossians that Christ dwells in us and that we are full of Jesus. He says in verse 9, chapter 2, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. So, on one hand, all Christians are indwelt with with this love, with this power, with this indwelling, this fullness... So what is Paul praying? Well, he's praying that it's one thing for us to know the love of God, to know the indwelling of Christ, to know the power. It's another thing to live in its presence. When revival happens in people's hearts, they're experiencing that presence. It's kind of like you get an inheritance and you're incredibly blessed, and you put that money in the bank. 
and you're out on one night and, and uh, your car breaks down and you forgot your wallet and you see a bank, it's your bank, and you go over to it and you realize you don't have your ATM card. You've got all this money in the bank, but you can't use it. It's yours, but it's not your experience. And I wonder how many of us live a lot of our Christianity that way. When we celebrate the blessed God that gives us all spiritual blessings, but we very seldom taste it, touch it. And don't misunderstand me. I don't think life is like that all the time because all of us know the dark night of the soul. We all know dry spells. We all know, where are you, God? We all know, God, help us. But oftentimes, those are the things that we experience because of the pressure of the world that comes against us and the world and the flesh and the devil that is constantly trying to undermine us. But oftentimes, there's so many things that we can lean into, the idols of the heart that make life okay, and we're not desperate. And I, I kind of, one of the things I appreciated about what God was doing in those 70s, nobody had an MDiv or a DMIN or had been to seminary. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. God knows I've been to many years of that. But I know the things that God did with people who weren't necessarily degreed, but were absolutely desperate. And I fear in our culture, maybe even the culture that we've established here at Sisters, because not lots of people can live in this community. We read that all the time when we find that we can't get housing for people to work in restaurants and what would happen if many gave up their second homes? Now that's another message. <laughs> but think about Paul's prayer. So he says we need it because though we have it, we don't draw upon it and we don't experience God's presence. We know about that love. We know about that presence. We know about it, but we don't know it. That's why we need it. That's why Paul prays for it. He's praying for it. And I thought this was interesting. How many of you know the Bible Project? Tim Mackey. There is no greater Bible nerd than Tim Mackey. Love the dude. And uh, love his teaching, love it all. But listen to what he said. Ryan uh, gave me a book called, uh, what's it like? Praying Like Monks and Living Like Fools. Is that the title, Ryan? Yeah. So, so this is what Mackey says in the introduction. I, find, I found myself intellectually compelled by the story of Jesus, even personally moved, but I had lost touch with a way of life marked by personal connection or intimacy with the one Jesus called Father, and therefore with Jesus himself. What I needed was not just a new set of techniques to revitalize my prayer life, I didn't really know what I needed. All I knew was that Jesus felt like an artifact. And the presence of God was an idea, but not an experience. I didn't know what to do, except hope that one day something would change. Wow. 
But when you read men and women of God who have made an incredible difference, you see that their relationship with Christ is what sustained them. You think about Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret, and you think about Amy Carmichael's A Chance to Die, or you think about Jim Elliott's Through Gates of Splendor, and you realized something else was going on in their life. And because of that reality, we read about them because they were different. When we think of Jim Elliott's words, of wanting to give up what he could not keep to keep what he could not lose. We recognize there's something that God wants to do in our hearts and in our lives. So what is this thing that Paul is praying for? I want you to look at what he's standing because he's talking to us about this longing. You go back to the reality of what he says, I, I pray I pray, I pray out of his glorious riches. But notice uh, reason he kneels. And it's important to realize, Jews didn't typically kneel when they prayed. You go to the wailing wall in Jerusalem, they're not kneeling. They're rolling up things and sticking prayers into the wall there, and they're standing, and they're bobbing, and they're living. But to kneel represents a longing a desperation, and Paul is desperate for these Ephesians who knew persecution, who knew suffering, who knew financial hardship, but it isn't interesting. He's not praying for that. He's praying for the presence of God in their lives. And so he goes on, I pray out of this glorious riches he may strengthen you with power in the inner being. So the first petition that Paul prays, because he prays three of them in this little passage, is that we would have an inner reality, that we would have an inner experience, that we would know the sense of God. It's, it's part of why Christianity begins with the new birth. You must be born again. It's not about going to church. It's not about reading your Bible. It's about the Spirit of God coming inside of you and the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead quickens your mortal body and you begin to live life differently because Jesus said the Spirit will come when I'm gone and he will teach you all the things that I have said. It is the Spirit that is to fill us. It is the Spirit that is to give us fruit. It is the Spirit that we are to walk in. And what Paul is praying is that this spirit would be a part of our inner man so that the life of Christ would not be simply a formula or something we simply do, but it is something that we are in Christ and he has his way in our life and he is the one that is controlling our behavior in our life. And I know that there are times in our life where that's not true. There are days and maybe every day in our desperation, we need to confess our sin or confess that we're not desperate enough, that life's too good. And we have our hardships, we have our kids, we have all those issues, but we also have a world that's going to hell. We also have a world that is broken, a world that is hurting all over. And we're to be the light. And we're to be that ambassador for Christ. And Paul prays, let me have that. This inner, inner being is, is synonymous with the heart. 
And the heart is not the seat of the emotions in the Jewish mind. The heart is the, the center of the being. It's, it's what's controlling us. It's why the writer of Proverbs says, 23, he says, give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes see my ways. The heart, Paul prays here. It is a basic place of where our personality and our commitments, and it's why Jesus says, where your heart is, that's where you'll find your treasure. And there's lots of stuff that comes out of our heart that isn't of God, and God wants to give us new hearts. It was the promise of the, the new covenant. It was the promise of the gospel. It was the promise of Jeremiah 36 that one day God would write the laws of his will on people's hearts. And so Paul prays that in verse 16. The second petition is in verses 17 and 18. Notice what he says. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love. He says that we would grasp here in verse, uh, in verse 17, I'm sorry, he w- that we would grasp in verse 18. This love, he says, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. I'm not sure what all that means, but I want it. I want you to want it. I want us to pray for each other to want it because it is the transforming power of God that'll change our world. It's not gonna be better education. It's not gonna be putting the end of racism. It's not gonna simply be taking care of the poor. As important as all those things are, the only thing that's gonna change our world is hearts being totally transformed by the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God filling us with God's presence to live differently than the world. That's what Paul prays here. Not just the experience, but the deep love in that inner person. And notice, when I think about that as I've read, I remember when I was a new believer, I just read all these books about these people. C.T. Studd and Amy Carmichael and Richard Wormbrandt and D.L. Moody and Hudson Taylor and the things that, that were very important to them and, and their, the little things that they kept in their hearts. I remember when, one of them had this little ditty and I just thought, I want that. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, a heart from sin set free, a heart that feels thy precious blood so freely shed for me, a heart resigned, submissive, Meek, my great Redeemer's throne, where only Christ is heard to speak, and God, he reigns alone. I remember reading this Amy Carmichael and, and the reality of her prayer. Let me read it to you. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I, I hear them hail thy bright ascending star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent, leaned me up against a tree to rent, by ravening beast who compassed me I swooned. Hast thou, no, hast thou no wound? She says, no wound, no scar, yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound or scar? I remember Richard Wormbrandt when he 
was in solitary confinement, let in a hole in the ground after they beat him. 14 years, three years in a hole in the ground. And he was in there and he prayed, God, because the only way he could keep his sanity, because they'd lift him up every once in a while and beat him, put him back in the hole. He, he simply asked God to give him a message to preach. And he'd walk around, he said, in this hole that was barely big enough to lie down in. And he'd preach. And he said, God, please, just give me your words to preach. And God, if there's anybody anywhere that could hear this message, may they hear it and change their life. The reality of that prayer sounds, what? A number of years later, a man was walking through a bookstore. Wormbrand had been let out of prison. He wrote a book called Sermons in Solitary Confinement because he memorized those sermons so that he wouldn't go mad. The man walked through the bookstore. He saw the book there. He saw what a strange name for a book. He picked up the book, flipped through it. He saw the title of a message and he read it. It was the very message that Wormbrand preached that he heard when he was in jail and came to Christ. How does that happen? I don't know. But is God capable? The God who raises people from the dead? The God who brings experience to all of our lives? I think about D.L. Moody, founder of all the YMCA's and YWCA's and great preacher came to Christ and he was preaching one day and he looked out into the audience and there was a, two elderly women on their knees after church, he said, what, what are you doing? They said, we're praying for you, Dr. Moody. You need the filling of the Spirit. He was a little bit indignant over that. But he began to realize how honest they really were. And he cried out to God, God, give me more of you. God, fill me with your love. Give me more of you. And he happened to be in New York City at a particular time going to do a conference. And he just had this burden, God, fill me. And God came upon him while he was walking in the streets of New York City. And he couldn't withstand it. He had a friend who lived nearby. And he said, he went to the friend's house and he said, can I just come and can I just go into a room? And he went into the room and he kept praying, God, stop, stop. Because the love of God was just so penetrating his life. He begged God to stop. And when he went out of that place and continued his ministry, he experienced power like he had never known before. More people coming to Christ, more things happening in their lives. That was the experience of D.L. Moody. I think of Blaise Pascal. When he died, they found written into the coat pocket. He was a brilliant mathematician, philosopher, scientist, and one night, 1634, he had an experience with God. He said it was a mystical experience. But he met God in ways he'd known nothing about. And as he reiterated and tried to interpret it, he just simply, he said, he said these words. 
He said, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and the scientists and of the learned, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God, your God, your God will be my God, forgetfulness of this world and of everything except God. And when he died and they got his coat, they found this inside of it. There are times in all of our lives, and friends, it doesn't matter how long you've been a believer, it doesn't matter how smart you are, it doesn't matter where you've gone to school, I can tell you some experiences as a hippie, which is why I came to Christ. God wants us to be in that place where we cry out in desperation, I just don't want to know about you, Jesus, I want to know you. And I want to know, as Paul said, the power of your resurrection. Paul goes on, there's a third petition he writes here. The third thing that he prays is that, verse 19, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, and he says, so that you may be filled to the measure of all of the God. Be filled to the measure of God. And what Paul is praying for here, typically all throughout scripture, this fullness, this filling, is about a pattern of life. I want more of the pattern of Jesus in my life. I want less of me in my wheeling and dealing and more of him and his purity and trust. That's what Paul's praying. It's a hard prayer. I was reading it all these last week and, and then when I watched, I watched Friday night, I watched the Jesus Revolution and I couldn't get past that word, desperation. Because I remember when we lived in the teepee and, and we were in this place and experience was the mantra. There wasn't a drug I didn't do. There wasn't, there just many things I am not proud of and all of it was to find meaning and there was no grid to interpret any of it until Jesus entered into my world. And so he prays. So how do we, how do, we do this? How do we receive it? So notice what, what he says here, because I think it's, it's really important that we recognize. He gives us four things that are a part of this. He says, one, that we prayerfully, as Paul says, I pray, so we're prayerfully seeking it, but he also wants to be, us to be aggressive, aggressively wrestling with it, and then he wants us to certainly be a people who are doing it together, communally. And then he wants us to recognize that it has to be Christ-centered. So look at, look at some of what he says here. He says, I want you to know here, he says, it's, a, it's the sense of, let me, let me find the verse here for you for a moment. Aggressively wrestling. He says that you may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. I'm skipping over prayerfully seeking it because we would all say, duh. That's what Paul's doing and that's what we're called to do. We need to pray. We need to get before God. But notice what he says to grasp it. This word is such a fascinating word. It's a word that was used in military combat where you would grab your enemy and throw him to the ground. I saw my uh, grandson the other day as I got back from 
from Boston to Portland and spent the night there. And I came in the door and I said, hey, Max, what do you want to do? And the first thing he said, let's wrestle. (laughs) But have you wrestled in prayer? Have you wrestled with the scriptures? Have you a young person with Psalm 119, 105, how shall a young man walk his way? How shall a young man keep pure but by taking heed to the word of God? Have we wrestled with what Paul said to Timothy, study to show yourself approved, a workman needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth? Have we recognized this prayerfully seeking, as Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God? So Paul is giving us ways where we can pray, and, and, I, and I hope and I pray as we have spend, we're spending these weeks looking at Paul's prayers that we would take, we'd go home with these prayers and we would grasp them, we would wrestle them, we would throw them to the ground and say, God, I just don't want to know the word, I want to know the reality, because I'm desperate. I want to wrestle the enemy to the ground and live in the victory of this Christ. The third thing he says here is that we would do it communally. And again, he says that in verse 18, may have power together with all the saints. I get so weary of people saying to me, people who have left this church at overtime said, oh yeah, I'm spiritual. It's a church I don't like. I just don't like institutional, organized religion. If you don't like the church, you don't like Jesus. Because it's his church. And does the church make mistakes? You bet we do. It's why it's nothing more than a bunch of beggars showing other beggars where to find food. (laughs) So that's the life we've been called to. To satisfy one another. To live together with all the saints. Because it's here, as we live with each other, we learn humility, we learn empathy, we learn how to pray for, we we learn compassion. And so finally, he says that we would do it Christocentrically. But I love this thing in verse 18, that we may have power together with all Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. How wide is that love for you? The psalmist says in Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our sins from us. How wide? Think of him as he stretches out his hands. How wide from Genesis to Revelation? How wide from Revelation 22 with heaven the city of God coming out to the depths of our depravity. How broad God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The joy of this love encompasses every aspect of our life. There's no prayer that we will pray that is too big for God. And so as we think about Paul's prayers I would hope that we would just continue to live in the reality of the beauty of these. And Paul, pray, uh, Paul ends his prayer like this, and I love it. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask 
or imagine. According to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Praying like monks and living like fools. That's a great title for a book. So I wonder as we come to the communion table, you know, communion is about breaking bread, right? And breaking bread is about community. Breaking bread is about intimacy. Breaking bread is about friendship. Breaking bread is about the church. But breaking bread is also about worship. Breaking bread is also about coming to the table with huge spirits of gratefulness for the one whose body was broken, whose blood was shed, that you and I might be here this morning and even in desperation say, God, I want more of you. I think what Job said, who was in the worst of situations, he said, God, your word is more necessary than the very food I put on my table. May I wrestle with it. Saints, I know how hard prayer is. As we meet on Fridays to pray, an hour seems like a death sentence. But I can also tell you this, the more we pray, the more we're desperate to pray, the more we're seeking God in prayer, and the more God wants to move on our behalf. It isn't how smart you are. It isn't how many verses you know. It's none of that. I remember when I was just brand new a believer and sitting in in that teepee and the Spirit of God came, I didn't know anything. Matter of fact, the very book I was reading, I would look at today and say, I think that book's heretical. God doesn't care. God will use anything, even jackasses, to speak to us just to get us in his presence. So no matter who you are, where you've been, whether you're a believer for a week or 20, 30 years, God wants you to desperately be in love with him. Let's pray. God, I pray that as your people stand and come to the communion table, we would come in a spirit of desperation we would come with the hunger to meet you fresh, that it would not be another formulaic approach to communion. God, maybe it would come with confession of sin. Maybe it would come with celebration of life and what you've done. Maybe it would come with great thanksgiving for spouses, for kids, for brothers and sisters in Christ, for the life that you've given. Thanks for listening. We hope this encourages you to dive deeper into your relationship with God through prayer, scripture, worship, and community. We hope you can join us on Sunday mornings at 9.30. For more information, go to sisterschurch.com. Be blessed, friends.